Welcome to the Valley Advocate Podcast, featuring interviews that take us deeper into the people and happenings on the local scene. For more podcasts and a closer look at what's going on in the Valley, visit us at valleyadvocate.com. Hello and welcome to the Valley Advocate Podcast. My name is Dave Eisenstatter. I'm the editor of the Valley Advocate. I'm here with Peter Stilla, who wrote for us the cover story this week, The Return Trip, Psychedelics May Come Back from the Abyss of Illegality. Welcome, Peter. Hello, how are you? Good, good. I'm yeah. glad that you're, you're here talking to us. So this is a story about psychedelics, which were made illegal in 1966, uh, having a, a resurgence, a renaissance, as you describe in your piece. I, I wanted to ask you first how you became interested in the topic of psychedelics. Well, um, I've been interested in the topic of psychedelics for quite some time. Um, I am of the generation where it could be said that it was uh, almost a rite of passage. Uh, I, I lived in California for 12 years, and you know that might you know tell you something too. Um, and so the interest was always there, and um, I really, it was reignited when the Michael Pollan's book came out last year, um, How to Change Your Mind, um, New York Times number one bestseller, and pff, strolling through Barnes & Noble one day, and, uh, you know, there it was, and I'm like, oh, wow, you know, and uh, um, so I picked it up, and uh, I highly recommend it. It's uh, it's a fabulous book, and um, so I read it, and it just sort of reignited a lot of thoughts I've always had um, about psychedelics, and that was I. Uh, after completing it, I was saying, you know, I think somebody should you know write about this for our favorite free weekly in the uh, Pioneer Valley. <laughs> That's the Valley Advocate for anyone who didn't make that connection. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I really, I mean, the way that you start this piece is uh, about how far we've progressed along with the legalization of cannabis marijuana um, over the past several years. And what you're really showing here is that psychedelics are poised to make a similar, maybe not precisely the same, but kind of a similar trajectory in terms of passing into being completely illegal to being legal for certain uses. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the history of that. Well, sure. I mean, it was, um, again, it was like 1966. Uh, you know, America just went through that, that Timothy Leary era, which started at, uh, at Harvard in 1960. And um, where he was doing experiments. Well, he was like uh, doing studies uh, at Harvard. And um, it was like the first time that uh, psychedelics sort of escaped you know, the, uh, the ivory tower of academia. Um, research had been going on on psychedelics since 1938. Uh, that was when uh, Albert Hoffman uh, synthesized LSD, quite by accident, uh, as most great discoveries are. Um, and, uh, and, and we should say that in terms of religious use, they had been going on for millennia. Oh, well, millennia. Millennia um, in different cultures. Yes, uh, all over the world. Um, uh, uh, Hinduism, Zoroastrianism, uh, Buddhism, uh, and uh, in the Americas, uh, highly prevalent. Uh, South America, Latin America, 
and among Native Americans. Um, and it's been going on millennia, it's safe to say. Uh, so there was that aspect of it. Um, but the thing that really started the Renaissance was how there was a lot of scientists who were working on uh, psychedelic research in the 50s and you know, leading up to the prohibition. And they really felt like they were onto something right at the time where, you know, the poop house went out in the flames. <laughs> Sorry about that. And um, so it was, and then it was like later on, it was just like, you know what? A lot of these people got together and we need to go back because there was something of tremendous value that was lost. And um, that's kind of when it restarted uh, in the 90s. Uh, Johns Hopkins University was a center. Um, and actually all over the United States, UCLA did studies. Uh, Purdue University in Indiana was, uh, uh, had a few things going on. So it restarted and, um, you know, it went through the process like from scratch and uh, went to the uh, FDA. Uh, they did uh, clinical studies and produced uh, amazing results. Uh, so it does look like we are on the path towards legalization for at, at least for medical use. Um, what follows that? We don't know, but if cannabis is a guide, um, we can expect that, you know, after medical use is approved, uh, hopefully there'll be um, uses in other areas that would be approved too, especially in a spiritual context. Yeah, and uh, what you have here, Oakland, California, Denver, Colorado, just this year have passed decriminalization efforts. So it's still illegal, but it's not, you're not facing jail time. It's it's a fine versus a... a, a yeah, what they say, it, when something like that is decriminalized, uh, it's called the lowest law enforcement priority there is. Like, you know, in order to get in trouble for, you know, mushrooms, you would have to like, you know, back up a dump truck and like put some in a police station, I think. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it's virtually legal. Uh, but, you know, as I sort of get into, into the article, I don't think the, the breakthrough with psilocybin or mescaline or anything like that. Psilocybin is the, that, that's in mushrooms. The, yes. Yeah. Psilocybin is the uh, psychoactive ingredient in certain species of mushrooms. Right. <laughs> uh, not any, don't run to the big Y right yeah. now. You're not going to have much luck. Um, and, but I, I think the, the real breakthrough, again, is going to be in the medical field. And then, you know, some of these uh, personal use decriminalizations and perhaps legalizations may follow. Decriminalization was the first step that marijuana took in Massachusetts before it was legalized for medical use and then eventually for recreational use after that. Um, I want to go back to what you were talking about in terms of uh, the different uses, especially for spiritual use. Uh, as you point out in your piece, mushrooms, LSD, that's an, an area where science and spirituality meet for some people. Maybe you could talk about that. Well, sure. Um, again, ever since, uh, you know, the late 30s uh, with Albert Hoffman and mostly in the 1950s, um, 
the research that went into um, psychedelic drugs convinced a lot of people that there was really something there that was much more than they were expecting. Um, in a spiritual sense. In a spiritual sense. You had like academics and scientists and, you know, researchers who, you know, those people in those, uh, in those professions are prone to be materialist. Um, not necessarily believers. Not or... necessarily believers. And, you know, to use a, you know, like a well-worn out uh, phrase, they got their minds blown. Um, because most of them figured, you know, initially they were using LSD for alcoholism treatment. That was thought to be the first, Mm. this is, we're going to use this. And, um, you know, they were giving, you know, LSD to alcoholics and, um, who were seeking treatment. And instead of like the psychosis that they expected LSD to mimic, you had, uh, these these patients come back and say, I felt a transcendental union with, you know, the world and things like, you know, I felt so much empathy for my fellow man, you know, things like that. And, you know, these researchers are saying, excuse me. And, um, and after a while, you know, most of them, I think I'll do some self-experimentation now. <laughs> And um, and they did, and uh, all of a sudden they found their own worldviews being challenged, strongly challenged. Um, they felt their self identity as scientists, sort of, what am I, you know? And and they begin to say see themselves in a much more holistic way, and um, and as early as the. 1950s, there were, you know, many people who were doing research were, were thinking, this is ultimately, it's not just going to, to be for mentally ill people. This is going to be for what the, the phrase that uh, they like to use a lot was the betterment of well people. Hmm. Um, and um, it's just because, you know, people come back from these, you know, trips, I, I don't like the word trip, but, you know, it's, that's okay. You know? <laughs> but, and, um, you know, they felt like they were given privy to um, a spiritual realm that they didn't even look to seek, but it was just, you know, it's just sort of part of the experience. And um, I get into a little later how, they seem to work in the brain and um, and allow that to happen, and uh, so I'll save that. But. Yeah, well, no, I, I, I actually love to go there. Um, in, in the piece later on, you're talking about some studies that are going on in the UK, uh, one of which was to study how psychedelics act on the brain, and uh, you talk about this metaphor there that I'll let you describe that just really, for me, was just really helpful to, in terms of thinking how this whole thing can even happen. So maybe you could talk about that. Well, sure. Um, you know, what they discovered, you know, and they've discovered a lot, obviously, but um, by the time most people, re- by, by the time everybody reaches adulthood, um, there's a, a, 
a portion in your brain, uh, and it's called a default mode network. And, you know, what that is, is the area that when you, as you grow up into a, a big person, you have a really strong developed sense of ego, a strong developed sense of self-identity. And um, what that does is, you know, it, it's, it's well and good for doing a lot of the, you know, practical things that you need to get through life. You know, you're definitely not apt to, you know, walk into traffic and, uh, you know, get your, you'll get your taxes done on time. But as far as feeling a part of something larger, it, it doesn't allow you to do that because it, it sort of like holds your perceptions in a kind of a psychic walls. Um, you were saying that they're so worn from like those same oh, neurons yeah, are just, so worn from use that uh, you kind of those are the ones that you are always are going to use because it's so they yeah that's it and you go back to it every day it's the little voice in your head that's you right yes. you know this is me I, here I am I think I'll make my cup of coffee and um, but you know and I, I think I also mentioned you know there's a medical maxim that you only use 10% of your brain. Right. And that's largely true. we've all heard that. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, so you're, you're using a very um, limited area in your brain. And brains develop grooves, like actual grooves. Um, and so thoughts have a way of just kind of repeating themselves, you know. And um, there is a lot of... Um, and if it's if it's too bad a problem, that's when you see people with, with depression, and they're sort of stuck in cycles of just self rumination, you know, and they can't kind of break it. And um, so uh, I might have digressed a little, but what you were referring to, uh, what psychedelics do uh, when you take them is sort of add a fresh layer of snow. Mm -hmm. and to cover up your your little roadways in your, in your brain that you use all the time. So it has, your brain becomes more of an equal opportunity uh, thing where uh -huh. you can all of a sudden, and you're not even trying, all these other neural pathways are activated. Um, be, you know, because the, the DNM portion is... The kind default of, mode it's suppressed, yeah, and um, so and that's what results in the psychedelic experience. Uh, I think people uh, sort of transcend their sense of self, their ego self, and they do find themselves um, as part of a, a mystical whole, and um, a, a very interesting part of the research was that. Um, uh, matter of fact, it's a, a, a gentleman at UMass uh, Medical School. He started the, um, I think it's the UMass Center for Mindfulness. It's at the medical school in Worcester. And um, they've done research into uh, people who are very experienced meditators, um, people who have been practicing Buddhists or what have you for years and years and, and who are really able to you know, elevate their consciousness when they go into meditative states. And, you know, they they wired up those folks and they, 
you know, wired up the people taking psilocybin or LSD or what have you. And what they found is that um, the, the patterns of thought are virtually the same in both people who are taking using psychedelics and people who are uh, meditating in a deep meditative state. Yeah, that, I mean, that's really incredible. And another use that they have tried that we haven't really talked that much about in this conversation is end-of-life um, treatment. And th- that's something that's going on at NYU right now. Yes, yes. Um, that was the uh, the NYU psilocybin, pro- uh, uh, psilocybin cancer project or, or something like that. And, um, you know, what they would have been doing there since, geez, I don't know, 2010. It's been going on a while. Um, You know, they would have people, uh, they sought volunteers, people who were, you know, facing, uh, you know, very serious, you know, prognosis, um, you know, perhaps a terminal prognosis. And uh, they got those people in and they, you know, obviously that's, you know, not where you want to be. And, uh, you know, People would show up uh, for treatment, and um, and they were giving them psilocybin, and uh, the results were jaw dropping. Um, they were the doctors and researchers were just amazed. They said that you know we have people come in here who are really really afraid of dying, afraid of death, and you know one psilocybin dose. It's it's unbelievable what the results were. You know, they they're not afraid of dying anymore, and um, they were actually comforting members of their own family. Yes, were, yes, were... there was, uh, yeah, yeah, and there was a one gentleman, Patrick. I, I'm sorry, but anyway, he you know was diagnosed uh, with cancer. Uh, I think the late 2000s, and uh, by the time 2011 rolled around, he was he was pretty sick, and um, he um, went in for that treatment, and it was like amazing the results. He was uh, just vibrant, um, and uh, the people who were there, who you know, spent the last I, I think it's 17 months of his life after the, the psilocybin experience. He was the one, you know, hey, don't worry about me, I'm fine. He was like, you know, ridiculously upbeat, you know. <laughs> and, mm. and, uh, and that's the thing that's amazing about psilocybin. It's like it's one, it's one hit and it lasts. It's not like your antidepressants where you're, you're taking them every day and, you know, the, the effects can be negligible. Um, you know, they would give these people one dose and it would, it really, it has a transformative effect. The way that you end the piece is to kind of offer up a question that these plants that exist in the world, you know, fungi and plants, the cactus, um, as well as this chemical compound exist in the world and seem to give us access to more spiritual parts of our brain that we don't ordinarily have access to. Right. And you discussed a little bit about what the meaning of that might be. I did. And um, I, I, I think I mentioned that, you know, we all, we're taught to believe that, you know, 
all life forms on Earth have a long history, and they evolve and develop attributes to help them with their long-term survival. And um, but here we have something that doesn't—it it doesn't help the host organism at all. Uh, uh, mushrooms and cactus and uh, all these other things out there aren't any better off for carrying mescaline or psilocybin in their in their uh, systems. And but obviously they do incredible things for you know the people who take them. Uh, so you have to wonder, uh, you know, what are these things? Um, are they carrying a, a message that, you know, yes, we are supposed, it, we are supposed to use these things. Is like, you know, is God speaking to us through these, these plants? Um, is the natural world communicating with us? Um, it raises a, a host of questions like, unlike almost anything else that I can think of, um, and it allows for the intersection of science and spirituality in ways that I can't think of anything else does. So um, how did they get there? I don't know. but. They are there, and um, it makes you think with the properties that they do have, it's almost inconceivable that we're not supposed to use them. Um, you know, that's, that's how I felt about it, and um, uh, so that's what I put out there. <laughs> Well, great. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us. The Return Trip, Psychedelics May Come Back from the Abyss of Illegality is the cover story in this week's Valley Advocate. Thanks again. Uh, thank you. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to visit us at valleyadvocate.com.